that specifically the reformers would go back to very often because of what it tells us specifically about the work of the Spirit of God. That's kind of the main emphasis that I'm going to take this morning is that God is able by His Spirit to do what mankind cannot do. And what an encouraging message that is so relevant even though this text was written so long ago. And this is what really encouraged me this week. This text was written 520 B.C. And even though this is so far removed from us as far as time goes, the power of the message of the Word of God and the relevance for us to not trust in ourselves, just like we just saying, I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom, that's exactly the message that you and I need to hear. So I'm very thankful for this message from 2,500 years ago. That's a long time ago, isn't it? But it is the power of the Word of God that is still speaking to us by His Spirit, and I'm so thankful for that. So before we get into the text, I want to mention just a word about vision language. This is in the context of this single night of visions that Zechariah is having. All eight of these visions happen in a single night And when we come to this kind of language in the Bible, I just want to mention a word about what we should do with it. Because as we've said, it's admittedly strange sometimes to read this and go, okay, I just don't know what's going on. And so I want to encourage us as we look at these texts to see these as picture books rather than puzzle books. So a picture book shows you what's going on. You get a snapshot a puzzle is something you got to put together and figure out where all the pieces go and alphabetical order and whatever else. I know some of you are really crazy puzzle people, and that's okay. We love you. But this is not what this is. There is a time to figure out everything, to, to identify what goes where and who goes where. But sometimes it is okay to just get the picture. What is God doing? What do I see of God's beauty? What do I see of his attributes and his character? So that's just a way that I was thinking this week. Okay, I don't want to get hung up because we don't understand every single detail of this. There's a place for that. And there are people who ought to do that. It's my job through the week to identify everything that's going on and then relay this, the word of God, to you. But for your encouragement, think of this as a picture. What is God doing? How is he acting? What has he communicated and what has he done? And I think we can gain a tremendous amount of encouragement by viewing these passages like that. Now, that's not the only way you should view it. I'm just saying, if you're getting hung up, that might be a helpful tool to understand what's going on here. What are the attributes of the Word of God? When we talk about the Bible, we would say the Word is sufficient. It is necessary. It's authoritative. And one of the other words we use to describe the Bible is that it is clear. We talk about the clarity of Scripture. God does not want you to be confused when you read His Word. He is not after stumping you. He doesn't put this language in here to go, oh, they're going to get really hung up on this and it's going to be awesome. That's not the case. God communicates and reveals Himself to you for your good and so that you can understand who He is. So the Word is clear and God is able to reveal to us through his spirit, what he is saying. We're going to see that happen in the text today. It's really exciting. So let's turn together to Zechariah chapter 4. If you don't know where that is, it's okay. Go to Matthew, first book in the Old Testament. Back up two two verses, (laughs) two books. 
You'll be at Zechariah. So let's read together Zechariah chapter 4, and we'll pray and we'll begin for this morning. Zechariah 4, and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So here's the explanation. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb lined in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive tree which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured? And he said to me, Do you not know what these things are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to your word this morning knowing at least two things, that we are in need of help and encouragement and that your word is sufficient to provide that to us. So Father, as we all come with an emptiness of sorts that needs to be filled, I ask that by the power of your word, through the ministry of your spirit, because of what Christ has done, would you minister to our hearts. I pray that each one of us would gain encouragement, Lord, for the different situations that you have placed us in. We all have various areas of responsibility. We all have work to do, and yet we can't do it in our own strength. We need your help. So wherever we are this morning, Lord, would you meet us here? Would you come by your Spirit, encourage our hearts, help us to know your great love that you have for your people, and would we leave here more encouraged with higher affections for you than we had when we came in this morning. You can do this work, Lord, and so we ask you to do it, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take this chapter in three sections this morning. I said that the whole theme was about the power of the Spirit of God, so I'm going to mention three things that the Spirit of God does, three things God does by His Spirit. First, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 and see that God's Spirit conquers great obstacles. God's Spirit conquers great obstacles. As we begin the chapter, this interpreting angel who has been with Zechariah the whole time, kind of telling him about what he's seen, the angel comes to him and awakens him 
quote, as a man awakened out of his sleep. So Zechariah is not literally sleeping, but he's awoken up as if he were. And I think this is what's going on, that he has just seen in these previous four visions stunning imagery. Think of last week in chapter 3 where he sees Joshua, the high priest, who is clothed in these filthy garments representing the sin of the people. And he sees God perform the act of justification and remove the sin from Joshua and clothe him with this clean clothes. And I think all of this is stirring around in Zechariah's mind. And then the angel comes back and snaps him out of it and says, hey, there's more to see here. So he comes and awakens him. And the vision that presents itself to Zechariah is one of beauty and majesty. He sees this golden lampstand, this menorah was what it was called, with seven lamps on it. Now, in addition to providing light, the lamp in Jewish culture had more significance. It is sometimes used to refer to the presence of God, to the people themselves. There's all kinds of things that are associated with the lamp. Now, the high priest in the duty in the tabernacle and eventually then into the temple service would go every morning and every evening and trim the wicks, fill the lamp with oil because it was to burn continuously representing the presence of God with his people. So that was one of the mediation tasks that the priest would perform. He would mediate, as it were, the presence of God to the people by keeping this lamp in pristine order, keeping the oil filled, keeping the wicks trimmed so that it burned constantly. But in this vision, we see a lamp that has no need for human effort. There is a bowl on top of it that is supplying almost supernaturally the oil that this lamp needs to continue on burning. So Zechariah sees this image of this beautiful golden lampstand with no need for any kind of human intervention, but it keeps on burning continuously. And he says, I don't know what this is supposed to mean. The angel says, do you know what's going on here? And he says, no. And I just, I think this is something we can take great encouragement from. And here's why. This is Zechariah, the chosen prophet of God, the mouthpiece, as it were, of God himself. He is hearing from God, telling the people what God has said. And all of the things he has seen, all the things he has heard, he still looks at what God shows him and says, I don't get it. And in the picture now of the angel revealing to him, God through the angel revealing to Zechariah what it means, I think we can have confidence that God will make his word plain. Not the main point of the text, but I think it was a really encouraging part of the text. Zechariah looks at it and he goes, I don't know what's going on. It's kind of like, remember uh, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? And the Ethiopian's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip comes up and says, hey, do you know what you're reading? And he goes, well, how can I unless someone tells me? That's kind of the situation that Zechariah is in in Zechariah 4. He goes, I don't know what's going on. And I think what's going on, in addition to just the communication of what God wants him to know, is that we see God's willingness to make his word plain, to make his revelation understandable. Like I said a minute ago, God is not after hiding his will from you. That's why he gave us this book, so that you can know God. You can know what he requires of you and what he has done for you and his character and his attributes. So just a just kind of side note, but when we come to the scriptures, when we come to what God has revealed to us, it's so easy to be confused, isn't it? I mean, we just read some stuff in the Bible and you've got to admit, we don't know what's going on. 
Psalm 119, 19, the psalmist prays, open my eyes that I would see wondrous things in your law. That is the posture that we ought to have when we come to the Word of God. God, open my understanding. I, I see what's there, but I don't get it. What's the picture? What do we need to know? And God in His extreme mercy and grace answers that prayer. Wonder of wonders. So I was greatly encouraged by that. God delights to reveal Himself. So Zechariah admits, I don't get it. I don't get what, what's the picture of the lamp. I see what's going on. Help me understand what's, what's going on here. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. This is the explanation of the lamp. Then the angel said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So let's get a little bit of context here. Zerubbabel is the Jewish governor. He's not the king, he's a steward of sorts, serving under the Persian king. So Israel is released from captivity in Babylon, they come back to Jerusalem to start the building project, and Zerubbabel is named as the governmental figure, the leader, and is tasked by the king of Persia to oversee the building project as they start building the temple here. And I am sure that as the construction had started and Zerubbabel is real pumped up about this and he gets the people going, they lay the foundation and then after a while it stalls out. There was many obstacles. You remember when we looked at the book of Haggai that when the Israelites returned, when they came back to Jerusalem, there was a lot of opposition. The nations surrounding them didn't want them coming back because if they got strong, if they started worshiping God, there was nothing they couldn't do. And so Samaria and all of the regions around them raised a stink. And they started sending letters to the Persian Empire saying, you better watch out what's going on here. Don't let these people gain traction. So there was obstacle after obstacle. And then, of course, we see the people kind of lose interest in the project. Yeah, they started strong and then it kind of petered out as it went on. And so there's frustration, I think, that Zerubbabel is feeling this. Okay, what am I missing here? What am I doing wrong? I've been tasked to build this temple for God. I've been tasked to do this for the Lord, and, and nothing's happening. And the temptation, whenever things go wrong, is for us to immediately go, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to fix? It's the wrong question. He should have been saying, how can I submit myself to God's will, to God's rule? What is God going to do in this situation? The obstacles... Facing Zerubbabel, which are illustrated by this mountain. Oh, mountain in front of Zerubbabel. God says, I'm going to make you like a plane. In other words, all of these things that have been frustrating him are going to be a non-issue. Why? This is what the lampstand communicates, that this continuous flow of oil into the lamp, which keeps it burning, represents the fact that God will be with them by his spirit to empower them, regardless of any human effort, for the work that he has called them to do. Does it make sense? So no longer is there this human element of trimming the wicks and filling the lamp. God is saying, that's all done. I'm doing that. And now my presence, which he promised in earlier chapters, is going to be with the people, providing them with what they need to be faithful to him. So God's spirit conquers these great obstacles. Second, God's spirit overcomes the smallest of beginnings. Look again at verses 8 through 10. The word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. 
His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now imagine the excitement among the people when the building started. It has been 50 years of captivity in Babylon. They are finally released to come back to worship God as they desire, to have the temple rebuilt, which was one of the great wonders of the world. And so they're all excited, and the foundation is laid, and things are going great, and then it just stalled out. Nothing happened for a long time, and things just sat stagnant. And of course, there's a number of contributing factors. We talked about the pressure of the nations around them. We've talked previously in in earlier weeks about the own sin of the people and neglecting the commands of God and turning away to do their own thing. So there's all of these things. And the farther away from the start date they get, the less significant that beginning is. That's what the day of small things is. That's what that means in the text. That at first, yeah, this seemed great, but... By this time, it's been 17 years since the start of the temple, and it's still not past the the foundation level. And so, yeah, they were all jazzed up about it at first, but now this far removed from the start, they're like, yeah, that wasn't really that great. That's the day of small things. We we have a category for this, at least I do. Let's say you, you drive through town, and there's a big bare spot of land. And all of a sudden, one day, there's excavators sitting there. And they're like, oh, I wonder what's going on. And then the next week, they start moving the dirt, and the foundation's laid, and you drive by, hoping beyond hope that it's a barbecue restaurant, and it just never happens. But anyways, you see this construction start, and then it stops. There's rebar sticking out of the ground, there's concrete, but nothing else. And it sits, and it sits, and it sits. And before long, it's kind of a joke, like, hey, you want to go over to the new restaurant? Her, her, you know. But nothing's happening. And before long, it just becomes kind of a non-issue. You're like, yeah, that wasn't that big of a deal. That's what's happening. The, the temple had started, and everyone was all excited about it, and then it kind of petered out, and they're like, well, that was kind of a small thing. I guess that wasn't that big. God says, oh, no. Despite your small beginnings, despite the fact that this has sat dormant, my spirit will empower you to complete this work that I have given for you to do. So God's Spirit can overcome and work through and use the smallest and humblest of beginnings, which really all beginnings are that way. But you can understand the discouragement that the people had faced, and God comes and says, this is a picture of what I am able to do for you, which will demonstrate my power, my authority, my glory. God's Spirit overcomes small beginnings. Third, and finally, God's Spirit uses the most unlikely people. This was probably the most encouraging because I am an unlikely candidate, and you, you are as well. If you didn't know that, I just want to encourage you by saying you're not that significant. Isn't that encouraging? But we serve a God who is sufficient. So that's the encouraging part. But we'll get there. Okay. Verse 11 to 14, we see the identity of these two branches. Remember at first he says, okay, there's two olive trees, then there's two branches coming off of these, and he asks the interpreting angel, Zechariah asks him twice, what's going on with this? What are these? And again, the angel says, do you not know what these are? Meaning that Zechariah at this point, with all he had seen and all he had heard from God, should have understood, he should have caught on to what's going on here, but he doesn't. 
And on this crazy night of visions, he should have been able to put it all together. But again, he needs help. And so the angel tells him what they are. Only the thing that he tells them is not actually that helpful on the face value, is it? He says, what are these? And the angel says, oh, those are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord. Well, that solves everything, doesn't it? That's who those guys are. That doesn't really help us. We need to go a little bit further and see what's going on. Now, if you're having trouble trying to identify what these are, you're not alone. There just isn't a lot of information. But I think what we do have, in the sense that they are the two anointed ones and what we've seen previously, give us a really good clue. So I'm going to tell you where I'm at on this, and you judge and see if it's what the Word says. Now, there was two offices in the nation of Israel for which the person holding that office was to be anointed. That would have been the king, and that would have been the priests. Okay, these are the two things that to give the seal of approval, as it were, the sign of God's blessing on them. They were anointed with oil. So when we see the two anointed ones, I am saying that this is referring to Joshua the high priest and to Zerubbabel the governor, who's operating here and acting kind of in the place of the king. So why would I say that they are unlikely or that God uses unlikely people? Well, just consider for a moment these two guys. Joshua is a high priest with no temple. He has nowhere to act out the service to God that he is required by the law to do. He has no context. He has no facility. He has nowhere to exercise his priestly duties. Not only that, but we just saw in chapter 3 that he was the target of Satan's accusation. He is the representative of the people. He, in a representative way and figurative way, had the sins of all the people on him, right? So he's not a real rock star in the priesthood community. No temple, no service to perform, and yet God uses him. He chooses him to be the one to spiritually lead the nation. Now, what about Zerubbabel? He was a descendant of David. He was in the line of kings. He was the grandson of Jehoiakim, who was king of Judah, and yet he's not a king. He's a steward. He's a governor serving under a pagan king. So here we have a priest with no temple. We have a king with no kingdom. These are not celebrity-grade guys. These are not people who everyone looks at and goes, that guy's got it together. Let's put him in leadership. God chooses unlikely people to accomplish the things that he desires to do. And I'm reminded here of what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, verse 29, so that no human being might boast before the Lord. Why? does God regularly choose insignificant, small, obscure people to accomplish his will? Because there is no grounds for boasting. Because it is so obvious when God chooses the weak, the lowly, the despised, the obscure, that it is the power of God at work. Not the power of the man. Not the power of his ability. This is what he's trying to communicate to Zerubbabel. Look, I am going to give you everything you need. It's not about having the right tools. It's not about having the right people or the right leadership or the right experience. It is about having the right God. 
And God, through His Spirit, is able to take the most unlikely person and use them to accomplish whatever He wants. Because He's God. So God's Spirit uses these unlikely people like Joshua, like Zerubbabel, and like you and I. Now, we're not kings, we're not priests in that sense. But be encouraged. It's so easy when we, especially where we live now and when we live, it's so easy to think that in order to do great things, you have to be a great person. You have to have great resources. I don't have enough money to do that. I can't buy this. You got to spend money to make money, right? That's the old saying. Wrong. Not when it comes to spiritual things. So don't be fooled into thinking that you have to get to a certain point of recognition or notoriety or ability or skill before God can use you. Your inability, your lack of resources in no way hinders the work of God. And conversely, your ability that you have that was given to you by God, by the way, your resources that you have which were given to you by God, by the way, your talent, your skill, your experience, your connections do not help God to accomplish His work in any way. You can't contribute to the work of God and you cannot nullify the work of God by who you are. That's what's going on in this vision. God, by His Spirit, is going to give His people everything that they need. So it is clear that it was God who did it. Isn't that great? That is great news. And it is great news for us because we are so prone to think, well, I I have to be ready. I have to prepare. And yes, amen to that. We can't just sit around and act like dummies and expect everything to happen. We've got to engage, right? We know that. But it is not dependent upon us, brothers and sisters. The Spirit of God works through the most unlikely of people. I was a janitor for 13 years. But God stirred in my heart. I shouldn't be up here. What qualification do I have? It's the Spirit of God. And the same thing is true for you. Whatever your context, whatever you are doing, God is not prevented from using you by whatever your experience has been. He will use you. What an encouragement. I want to leave you with this. I want to ask a question. Based on everything that we have seen here, and of course, like I said, this is 2,500 years ago. This is very much removed from our context, from our cultural norms, from our experience? What do we do with this? What encouragement can we take from a lampstand? <laughs> well, I think there's a great encouragement for us to take. And I want to ask it in the form of a question. Being the people of God, living in the church age when we live, what, what guarantees us that the church will ultimately triumph? That God's plans will not be thwarted. That His ultimate goal for His people will come to pass. What confidence can we have? Is it in our ability to evangelize? Is it in our discipleship programs? Is it in how much we engage with our community? All great and important and necessary parts of the church. But is that our confidence? Is our confidence in the ability of the person handling the word or in the structures that we have in place in church? No. Our confidence that God's plan will be accomplished comes not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. 
Same thing is true as it was 2,500 years ago. We do not have to rely on our own strength. God is able through his spirit to give us everything that you and I need. The book of Zechariah was so popular in the 15 and 1600s because of this message. As the reformers came into the established churches, which were massively abusing the word of God, who were spreading heresy, who were really hurting the cause, they come into the church and they notice the abuses in the Catholic church and they say, this isn't right, that's not what the Bible teaches they were persecuted, they were martyred, they were tortured. What do you think it was that kept them going and gave them hope? It was this text, among others. Calvin said this, and he comments on Zechariah 4, when therefore we now see things in a despairing condition, and he had reason to despair, believe you me, When we see things in a despairing condition, let this vision from Zechariah 4 come to our minds that God is sufficiently able by his own power to help us when there is no aid from any other source. So that experience will at length show that we have been preserved in a wonderful manner by God's hand alone. Well, he continues, whatever then earthly aid fails us, let us learn to rely on God alone, for it is not by might, it is not by power that God raises up his church and preserves it in its proper state, but this he does by his hand alone. What a word, and what a confidence, and that is what gave men hundreds and even thousands of years before us the confidence to continue on with what God has called them to do. And I just want to encourage you, whatever you are doing for the sake of the gospel and for the kingdom of God, it is worth it and it will succeed if God is in it. We don't have to rely on ourselves. It is not by might. It is not by human power. It is not by your wisdom. You don't have any unless it comes from God. So take tremendous encouragement in our inability because God is able by his spirit to do everything that he has purposed. Father, thank you. Thank you for this much-needed encouragement. And all of us, if we're honest, feel our own weakness. We feel our inability. We are very much aware of our limitations. And yet texts like Zechariah 4 remind us that it ultimately does not depend upon our ability, but on you who will supply us with all that we need. So God, we, we come needy to you and ask that by your spirit you equip us. Help us to love one another, to be patient and kind and forbearing, to, to carry one another's burdens and to show the love of Christ to those around us. We don't have any hope on our own, but Lord, you are able to give us what we need. So we ask that you would do that. And we thank you that you hear us when we pray because we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.